0: Chapter 38 of Fraternity by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Overs. Chapter 38. The Homecoming of Hughes. Hilary had evidently been right in thinking the little model was not speaking the truth when she said she had seen Hughes, for it was not until early on the following morning that three persons traversed the long winding road leading from Wormwood Scrubs to Kensington. They preserved silence, not because there was nothing in their hearts to be expressed, but because there was too much. And they walked in the giraffe-like formation peculiar to the lower classes. Hughes in front, Mrs Hughes to the left, a foot or two behind, and a yard behind her, to the left again, her son Stanley. They made no sign of noticing anyone in the road besides themselves, and no one in the road gave sign of noticing that they were there. But in their three minds, so differently fashioned, a verb was dumbly, and with varying emotion, being conjugated. I've been in prison, you've been in prison, he's been in prison. Beneath the seeming acquiescence of a man subject to domination from his birth up, those four words covered in hues such a whirlpool of searching sensation, such ferocity of bitterness and madness and defiance, that no outpouring could have appreciably relieved its course. The same four words summed up in Mrs Hughes' so strange a mingling of fear, commiseration, loyalty, shame, and trembling curiosity at the new factor which had come into life of all this little family walking giraffe-like back to Kensington, that to have gone beyond them would have been like plunging into a wintry river. To their son, the four words were as a legend of romance, conjuring up no definite image lighting merely the glow of wonder. Don't lag, Stanley. Keep up with your father. The little boy took three steps at an increased pace, then fell behind again. His black eyes seemed to answer, You say that because you don't know what else to say. Without alteration in their giraffe-like formation, but again in silence, the three proceeded. In the heart of the sentries... Doubt and fear were being slowly knitted to dread of the first sound to pass her husband's lips. What would he ask? How should she answer? Would he talk wild or would he talk sensible? Would he forgotten that young girl? Or had he nursed and nourished his wicked fancy in the house of grief and silence? Would he ask where the baby was? Would he speak a kind word to her? But alongside her dread there was, guttering within her, the undying resolution not to let him go from her, as if it were ever so to that young girl. Don't lag, Stanley! At the reiteration of these words, Hugh spoke. Let the boy alone, you'll be nagging at the baby next. Walson awesome grating like science issuing from a damp vault, was his first speech. The sempstress's eyes brimmed over. I won't get the chance, she stammered out. He's gone. Hughes' teeth gleamed like those of a dog at bay. Who's taken him? You let me know the nine. Tears rolled down the senselessness' cheeks. She could not answer. The little son's thin voice rose instead. Pipe, he's dead. We buried him in the ground. I saw it. Mr Cree came in the cab with me. White flecks appeared suddenly at the corner of Hugh's lips. He wiped the back of his hand across his mouth, and once more, giraffe-like, the little family marched on. Westminster, in his threadbare summer jacket, for the day was warm, had been standing for some little time in Mrs Budgeon's doorway on the ground floor at Hound Street. Knowing that Hughes was to be released that morning early, he had, with the circumspection and foresight of his character, reasoned thus. "'I shan't lie easy in my bed. I shan't have no peace.' "'Till I know that low fellow's not a going to misdemean himself with me. "'It's no good to go and put it a bit off. "'I don't want him coming to my room attacking of old men. "'I'll be previous with him in the passage. "'The lame woman'll let me. I "'Shan't trouble her. "'She'll be palliable between me and him, "'in case he goes for it to attack me. "'I'd afraid of him.' "'But as the minutes of waiting went by, "'his old tongue like that of a dog expecting chastisement.' appeared ever more frequently to moisten his twisted, discoloured lips. "'His comes of mixing up with soldiers, he thought, and a low class a man of that. Ought to change me lodgings. He'll be asking me where that young girl is, I shouldn't wonder, and him lost his character and his job and everything, and all because of women. He watched the broad faced woman, Mrs. Budgeon, in whose grey eyes the fighting light so fortunately never died, painfully doing out her rooms, and propping herself against the chest of drawers whereon clustered china cups and dogs as thick as toadstools on a bank. "'I've told my Charlie,' she said, "'to keep clear of yous a bit. "'They comes out as prickly as hedgehogs. Pick a quarrel as soon as look at you, they will.' "'Oh, dear,' thought Creed. "'She's full of cold comfort.' "'But careful of his dignity,' he answered. "'I'm awaiting you to engage the situation. "'You don't think you'll attack at me with definition at this time in the morning?' The lame woman shrugged her shoulders. He'll have had a drop of something, she said, before he comes home. They gets a cold feeling in the stomach in them places, poor creatures. The old butler's heart quavered up into his mouth. He lifted his shaking hand and put it to his lips, as though to readjust himself. Oh yes, he said, ought to have given notice and took my things away. But there, poor woman, seems to itin' of her when she was down, and I don't want to make no move. I ain't got no one else that's interested in me. This woman's very good about many of my clothes. Oh, dear, yes, she don't grudge a little thing like that. The lame woman hobbled from her post of rest and began to make the bed with the frown that always accompanied a task which strained the contracted muscles of her leg. If you don't help your neighbour, your neighbour don't help you, she said sententiously. Creed fixed his iron-rimmed gaze on her in silence. He was considering perhaps how he stood with regard to Hughes in the light of that remark. I attended of his baby's funeral, he said, "Oh dear, he's here already. The family of Hughes indeed stood in the doorway. The spiritual process by which Westminster had gone through life was displayed completely in the next few seconds. It's so important for me to keep alive and well, his eyes seemed saying. I know the class of man you are, but now you hear it's not a bit of my use my being frightened." I want to get upside with you. Ha, yes. Keep yourself to yourself, and don't you let me hear any of your nonsense, because I won't stand it. Oh, dear, no. Beads of perspiration stood thickly on his patchily covered forehead. With lips stiffening and intently staring eyes, he waited for what the released prisoner would say. Hughes, whose face had blanched in the prison to a sallow grey-white hue, and whose black eyes seemed to have sunk back into his head, slowly looked the old man up and down. At last he took his cap off, showing his cropped hair. "'You got me to that, Daddy,' he said, "'but I don't bear your malice. Come up and have a cup of tea with us.' And turning on his heel, he began to mount the stairs, followed by his wife and a child. Breathing hard, the old butler mounted too. In the room on the second floor where the baby no longer lived, a haddock on the table was endeavouring to be fresh. Round it were slices of bread on plates, a piece of butter in a pie-dish, a teapot, brown sugar in a basin, and side by side a little jug of cold blue milk and a half-empty bottle of red vinegar. Close to one plate a bunch of stocks and guinea flowers reposed on the dirty tablecloth, as though dropped and forgotten by the god of love. Their faint perfume stole through the other odours, the old butler fixed his eyes on it. The poor woman bought that, he thought, hoping for to remind him of old days. She had them flowers on her wedding day, I shouldn't wonder. This poetical conception surprising him, he turned towards the little boy and said, This'll be a memorial for you as you get older. When another word, they all sat down. They ate in silence, and the old butler thought, That attic ain't what it was, but a beautiful cup of tea. He don't eat nothing. He's more amenable to reason than I expected. There's no one won't be too pleased to see him now. His eyes, trapped into the spot from which the bayonet had been removed, rested on the print of the nativity. Several so ill children to come on to me, he thought, and forbid them not. He'll be glad to hear there was two carriages forwarded him home. And, taking his time, he cleared his throat in preparation for speech. But, before the singular muteness of this family, sounds would not come. Finishing his tea, he tremblingly rose. Things that he might have said jostled in his mind. Very pleased to have seen you. Hope you're in good health at the present time of speaking. Don't let me intrude on you. We've all got to die sometime, rather. They remained unuttered. Making a vague movement of his skinny hand, he walked feebly but quickly to the door. When he stood but halfway within the room, he made his final effort. I'm not going to say nothing, he said. That'd be superlative. I wish you a good morning. Outside, he waited a second, then grasped the banister. All oh, he said so quiet, they've done him no good in that place, he thought. Them eyes of his. And slowly he descended, full of a sort of very deep surprise. I misjudge of him, he was thinking. Never was nothing but an armless human being. We all has our pretty juices I misjudge of him. They broke his arm, putting them, that they have. The silence in the room continued after his departure. But when the little boy had gone to school, Hughes rose and lay down on the bed. He rested there, unmoving, with his face towards the wall, his arms clasped round his head to comfort it. The sempstress stealing about her avocations pause now and then to look at him. If he had raged at her, if he had raged at everything, it would not have been so terrifying as this utter silence which passed her comprehension, this silence as of a man flung by the sea against a rock and pinned there with the life crushed out of him. All her inarticulate longing, now that her baby was gone, to be close to something in her grey life, to pass the unfranchisable barrier dividing her from the world, seemed to well up, to flow against this wall of silence, and to recoil. Twice or three times she addressed him timidly by name, or made some trivial remark. He did not answer, as though in very truth he had been the shadow of a man lying there. And the injustice of this silence seemed to her so terrible. Was she not his wife? Had she not borne him five, and toiled to keep him from that girl?' Was it her fault if she made his life a hell with her jealousy, as he had cried out that morning before he went for her, and was put away? He was her man. It had been her right, nay, more, her duty. And still he lay there silent. From the narrow street, where no traffic passed, the cries of a coster and distant whistlings mounted through the unwholesome air. Some sparrows in the eve were chirruping incessantly. The little sandy house cat had stolen in and, crouched against the doorpost, was fastening her eyes on the plate which held the remembrance of the fish. The sempstress bowed her forehead to the flowers on the table, unable any longer to bear the mystery of this silence. She wept. But the dark figure on the bed only pressed his arms closer round his head as though there were within him a living death passing the speech of men. The little sandy cat creeping across the floor, fixed its claws in the backbone of the fish, and drew it beneath the bed. End of chapter 38